0: Let's dive into our series, On Earth As It Is In Heaven. And so each week we've been praying the Lord's Prayer together and we've been focusing in on verse 10 of the Lord's Prayer. It says this, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We want to see the kingdom of light push back the kingdom of darkness. We want to see the rule and reign of Jesus extended into the places in our community that we might pray and plead and work together with Jesus through the power of the spirit to see the heavenly realm which is where everything is as God intends it to be to begin to break into the places of darkness and brokenness this is why we're engaging with OCC this is why we engage in Samaritan Village this is why we're putting uh, investment continuing into the why and reaching the youth and the next generation all of the, these things is because we want to see the kingdom advance and the language that's used throughout the scriptures is this word that I referenced a moment ago, that mishpat, it shows up over 200 times in the Old Testament. It's this Hebrew word for justice. Now, when we think justice, we tend to think, you know, that there's this determination of this person did this thing wrong, and the, the, the whether it be a jury or a judge decides like how they're going to be punished, and it includes that. But it goes further than that, it's about bringing a right ordering, and it's not just to people that are deserving, that the reality is this. It's the scripture saying, no, like every person who finds themselves in difficult spots, the marginalized, the broken, this is their right. They have a right to mishpat. And it's our responsibility as the church to step in and say, how can we help bring this right ordering? I read a book this past week called White Picket Fences. I'll reference it uh, later by Amy Julia Becker. But let me read you this. I feel like she does a great job summarizing the idea of justice of mishpat. She said, God's justice is not focused on punishing the wrongdoer. I mean, it includes that, but rather it is focused on protecting the vulnerable, restoring peace. Justice has to do with restoring relationships, with healing the social and emotional and spiritual fabric of individual lives and whole communities. God's justice isn't really about who should go to jail and who should be compensated for wrongdoing. It is about a whole different way of being in the world, God's way of being in the world with mercy, and unfailing love and compassion at the center. And so That is what we are exploring together in the month of January. How do we be the church in our community to bring this right order and to bring this flourishing? It will never be perfect. We long for King Jesus to come back and set everything right. But in the meantime, he has given us good work to do. And there's an invitation for us. If you're a follower of Jesus, don't sit on the sideline. Let's play. Let's participate. Let's see what God wants to do. Jesus promised that he would build the church. and The gates of hell will not prevail against her. That means the church is on the offensive. It is moving forward. It's busting through the gates of hell and reclaiming territory for the king. And we get to participate in that. And so this morning, we're gonna look at, as we've looked at various topics, what we're gonna talk about this morning is this idea of justice and racial reconciliation, diversity, what are God's hopes and intentions for his church? And so what I'd encourage you to do is, if you've got, if you wanna follow along, anything that's up on the uh, screen this morning will be at cpwp.life. You'll see a second card there that says message notes. And so if there's scripture passages that the reference, quotes, things like that, it's all there. There's space for you to, to take notes, to follow along. And if you need a Bible, there's some paperback ones on the back table. But as we get into this, let me tell you a story. This is, I was actually, this is when you realize you're getting old. I was like, oh, yeah, just, you know, this wasn't too long ago, maybe a couple years ago. And then I realized, oh, no, this is like 20 years ago. But I'll tell this 20 year old story. Um, We were living outside of uh, Chicago. My wife and I both graduated from this school out in the western suburbs called Wheaton College. Uh, We were working in that. Uh, that same area, um, and it was Fourth of July weekend, and so we ventured into the city. It was about a thirty-minute train ride. If you've ever been to Chicago, there's numerous public transportation systems, but the one that goes out into a lot of the neighboring suburbs is called the Metro. You see the picture there, and so we got on this particular train and we took it into the city. And we were there, and there's just—I mean, there's concerts going on. There's all these food vendors. It's just this amazing time. Um, and then. I kid you not, I mean, I've lived in Florida a long time. There's crazy storms here, but the biggest storm I have ever been part of, especially being out in the elements, rolled into Chicago. It was like this green sky. I mean, lightning, you're seeing like lightning hit the Sears Tower. I mean, it was just like this insane scene, all right? Like people began running in all directions. People are freaking out. One dude with no shirt on is literally screaming at the sky, take me now. I'm like, what is happening, right? I mean, it's just a really weird, bizarre scene and as you can imagine, there are so many people that decided, like we did, we're not going to drive into the city. That's crazy. We'll take the train. And so we find ourselves in the train station there um, with just massive amounts of humanity crammed into very small places, all right, trying to get on the train. They kept changing. Okay, this line's going out at this time. Everything was chaotic. The system was down because of power outages. It was just mayhem. And then you combine that with Fourth of July and people enjoying a beverage or two, probably, all right who end up at this particular train station. and so it started fun and festive. There were people like hitting beach balls around and all of this, and then we start to hear this this rumble, and suddenly there's like this wave. It kind of like started here in the center began to push out, and there was, all of a sudden this circle was forming, and there's two guys just going at it, just fighting, like swinging at each other, trying to land punches, and there's all of these just horrific racial slurs that are just being yelled here. And so everybody's moving away, and these guys are going, in security and cops are trying to make their way in. And I tell you that because for one, it shows, for one, just the brokenness, again, in our culture. You got two image bearers, right? And they have, in this moment, such hate and animosity and what is going on there? And you see this break and this fracture. And yet, my disposition in that moment, all right, was when can I get on the train and get back to the suburbs, right? I mean, I just wanted to get on that train and get out of there. Now, on the one hand, Nothing wrong with that. Like, I don't think it was my role to step in in that space and say, hey, guys, let's work this out. Can we talk this out? Like, all right, that wouldn't have probably been the safest thing in that moment. But I tell you this story because I think it's emblematic. I think it's a picture, perhaps, of how the church, even when we talk about culture at large, but this issue in particular, is like, there's a lot of brokenness and there's a lot of mess and there's a lot of chaos. And can we just get on out? Like, let's just leave that. There's a moment of like, can I just get on this train and get out of the city, move away from the complexity, move out to this spot where I'll feel a little bit more safe. But the calling of the church is to enter into the places of brokenness and of mess and realizing that we're going to get hurt. We're going to be misunderstood. We're going to, even in trying to navigate this particular topic, all right, there's going to be ways that you might even have the best of intentions and a heart to seek to bring about racial reconciliation, to see the diversity of even our church, like, grow and expand. And yet in there... To be honest, like there's just gonna be tough conversations, maybe hearing things that we don't want to hear or asking a question. You think it was a really innocent question and realize, oh, I just offended that person. I didn't even intend to do that. But the calling of the church is to press in. And So here's what we're gonna do this morning. I wanna go to Philippians chapter two. So I'd invite you to turn there. Again, cpwp.life, message notes. If you're using one of the Bibles in the back, you can turn to page 1084. And I wanna look at this beautiful community It's not a perfect community, all right, we're gonna look at even more of the context here in a moment, but it is this community of believers, this new church that is formed, and I wanna look at this as it'll help instruct us into what would it look like for our church to reflect more of the kingdom. Because the reality of where the story is heading is every tribe, tongue, language, ethnicity is going to be gathered around the throne worshiping Jesus. And the more we can get ready for that, let's get in on that, let's, let's get practice for what that's going to be like, the better. Like That's where it's heading and so why wouldn't we start seeking to work on that now? What would it look like for us to, to grow as a church, to see more diversity and to enter into the places where maybe reconciliation needs to, to happen? And if you think for a moment that I believe that I'm up here because, well, I've got this figured out and I've read a couple of books, I've had a couple of I No, like I am a complete novice at this. I am learning. I'm seeking to grow in this area. But it is a an increasing conviction that like, man, if this is where the story's heading, like, what opportunity we have as the church. Let's enter in and what is that going to look like for you and me and for us collectively. So I wanna read this, Philippians chapter two, one through 11, and then we'll make our way back through this. So beginning in verse one, it says this. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy. By being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Verse four, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others, and have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Verse six, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. it will have massive implications for us being the church that God has called us to be in a community, in a world, which is oftentimes confused about issues of race and ethnicity and different cultures and how, how to talk about those things and how to enter in and to minister in the places of brokenness. And so here's what we need to know. As we start into this, we're gonna go back to verse one in just a moment, but there's some context. Now, I put this reference to Acts chapter 16 up on the screen. I'm not gonna turn there. I'm not gonna read it. In just a few weeks, we're gonna be back into the book of Acts. We're gonna have an entire sermon on this particular passage, all right? So I'm not trying to give that sermon ahead of time. All I need you to see is this, that this church here in Philippi that Paul is writing this letter to has a very interesting story. If you're thinking about starting a new church and you get together a group of people for like kind of your core group, all right, here's the original core group that we read about in Acts chapter 16 is that there's a woman named Lydia who's this dealer in purple cloth that Paul happens to meet. She's out for this prayer meeting. She's a God fearer and Paul ends up sharing the good news, the gospel with her. She meets Jesus. She gets saved. She brings her whole household. They get saved. They experience the reality of jesus, His life death his resurrection they're in with team jesus now all right and so her life is transformed and so she is this very wealthy woman very entrepreneurial has got this great business the fact that she dealt in purple cloth like that was a very um elite sort of thing in the culture so you've got this very affluent woman all right has this place of prominence so that's that's the first person we are told of in this core group as this new church is starting we also meet, though, within a few verses, that there's this woman, this other, this slave girl. So you've got this woman who's being disrespected. She is being treated as property. She is a slave. The image of God is not valued in her. And she has these owners that use her, abuse her, want to make money off of her through her being able to give sort of prophetic words because she is, it says she had the spirit of divination. So she had some sort of, through the powers of the spiritual world, all right, some probably demonic oppression, she was actually able to make these sort of predictions. And so they made a lot of money off of her, sort of this fortune teller of sorts. You could come and ask her things and pay a certain amount of money. And she is, hounding paul and she's literally saying these men are you know they're working for jesus who's the son of the most high and eventually i love this in the scriptures it just tells us paul like if you think these guys are like oh they're just they're so holy and righteous it tells us in the scriptures he was annoyed and he's like for the love will she just be quiet and so he turns and he rebukes her and the spirit leaves her all right and she's free so here's the second person that's part of this core group now she meets jesus now the owners are very upset though because they just lost their source of income And so they get Paul thrown in jail. And while he's in jail, there's a massive earthquake. And the jailer, the Roman jailer thinks, oh my goodness, they've all escaped. I'm like, I'm going to be killed. So he's ready to fall on the sword himself. And Paul says, no, 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 don't worry, man. Like we're all here, it's all good. And then the Roman jailer gets saved. So just think about it for a moment. When Paul writes this, and we look at these words a moment, here's what I want you to have in mind. He is writing to a group of people. He's encouraging them to live with a unity, to have this oneness of mind, Let's, let's just acknowledge it right off the bat. This is a very diverse group. These people would never have hung out in a normal situation. These weren't their Friday night hangout sort, sort of friends, right? Lydia would have had nothing to do with the slave girl. The slave girl would have had nothing to do with Lydia or the jailer. I mean, these people, like, they were enemies in many ways, all right? They did not get along. They did not see eye to eye. And yet, what happens? They all acknowledge that they're in need of the saving and the cleansing work of King Jesus. They meet Jesus and suddenly it's like, oh, now we're the church. Pretty cool. But let's not for a moment be naive about it and think that they had no issue, all right? So at the end of the day, here's what I put before you. This is what we want to see as a church. We want to see this sort of diversity. We want to see the gospel reconciling people that wouldn't otherwise maybe normally even get along or see eye to eye. And so we can talk about that in the realm of race. We can talk about that in the realm of politics. We can talk about all of those things. There's so many things that seek to divide us. And listen, at the end of the day, people are gonna have different opinions and thoughts and all that, and there's some good in that. At the same time, if those things are dividing us, then the church is just being like the rest of the culture, We have this unique opportunity to say, here's what it looks like to even have differences and to celebrate the things that should be celebrated and to push back on the things that should be pushed back on, where we find our identity in something other than Jesus. We find it, perhaps, in our ethnicity, or we find it with a particular group or a particular political party or any sort sort of things that we can identify with, and Jesus blows all that up. He says, no, no, your identity is found in me. You can talk about those things. But when that begins to happen, so this, this, listen, this is why Paul writes to them. And so now let's look back at the first four verses. There's a calling for you and me, for us as the church. And verse one says this. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, he's just writing to this very diverse group of people. It would have grown from that original three, but I have to imagine the flavor, the makeup of the church was very diverse. And so he says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy... He's gonna lay some things before them. And so it's functionally just him asking for a moment, like, hey, are you remembering? Do you remember your story? Like, don't we have a tendency to forget all the ways that God has worked? We're kind of on to the next thing. And he's like, hey, can we just stop for a moment? And he's like, do you have any encouragement in Christ? And they would sit back, I think after receiving this letter, and be like, well, yeah. I found some great encouragement. This world is hard and it's difficult, but but the God of the universe has set his affection upon me through the finished work of Jesus. Yeah, there's a ton of encouragement there. Have you received any comfort from love? Yeah, do you remember the comfort? Do you remember the ways that the gospel has saved you, how it's changing you, that you've got an idea? You don't have to prove anything anymore. You've received the grace of God, that you've received love from God that this participation in the Spirit, how crazy is that? That the Holy Spirit, third member of the Trinity, has taken up residence in your life? Is this participation now? Any affection, any sympathy? So he says, hey, like, do you remember? There's another letter that Paul writes to a group of people in a city called Ephesus. Let me read this to you. A similar theme. And he's another way of telling, hey, this is your story. Look what brings you together. Ephesians chapter 2, 13 to 16 says this, but now in Christ Jesus, he says, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He's saying this message of the gospel, it wasn't just for the Jewish people. God worked in and through that people and that nation, but it was always intended to be a blessing to all the nations. God was gonna gather in all the tribes. This is what God's intentions have been from the very beginning. All sorts of different languages, cultures, ethnicities, skin colors. It's a big, massive party at the end of the story, all right? And it's beautiful in its diversity. And so he's writing to this group of people and he says, you've been brought near by the blood of Christ, that he himself is our peace. Not our plans, not our strategies, all right, none of that. Jesus is our peace. And then he says this, who has made us both one and is broken down in his flesh So what Jesus did on the cross somehow is broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Now, the dividing wall of hostility was there as a very, this wasn't just some general sort of abstract thing out there. It was in the temple. There was a wall. There was a court where the Gentiles could be and they could gather, but they could not go past it. There was literally a sign that basically said, if any of Gentiles should pass this way, they will be immediately killed. All right. So just imagine this this morning, like you roll in, you're welcome. You can come in the lobby, you can get some donuts and some coffee. But then you try and come into the gym, and there's a sign that says, "Oh, if you're not of this certain type, like the connections team will now murder you." Right? Like it's not a very good connections team for one. Right? Like just imagine that. But that's the reality of the situation. There was this dividing wall, and you could not pass. And it says, "No." In that, in Christ Jesus, it got obliterated. And so it says, by in the. uh, broken down in his flesh, the dividing wall of hostility, abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. That word there, that phrase, one new man, here's what I need you to see. You might go shopping this week, right? You might roll into a store and be like, oh, look at that, that thing's on sale. And you might pick up a new shirt, all right? That's not the type of newness that it's talking about. You might pick up a new piece of technology. That's not the newness that's talking about. This, when it uses, the, when Paul uses this word new, it's like there had previously been no other category for this. He's like, there is now a new humanity. It's not to say that ethnicity and all that goes away, but now there's this new humanity that the church gets to put on display for a watching world, that there's this one new man. This is what the gospel does. And so you have been brought in, I have been brought in if you're a follower of Jesus into this category that the world can't even wrap their mind around, doesn't know how to get in on, It might try as much as they they can and try as hard as that they might even with good intentions to bring about healing and restoration but the reality is it's only through the cross that there's this new humanity where there's this oneness and this unity. And so this is where then Paul, we're back in Philippians two says, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. This is what he's calling them to. This is what he's calling us to. And when Jesus, through Paul, communicates these words, he's like, listen, this idea of same mind, same love, full accord, one mind. Do not think for a moment that we're talking about uniformity. He's talking about unity. Maybe another way to say it is this that Jesus actually wants us to see color. I think well-intentioned white people oftentimes will say, hey man, I don't, I don't see color, I'm colorblind. That actually is an affront to our designer and creator that is Jesus. We have good intentions perhaps, if you've ever used that, that phrase, I'm not trying to knock, I've probably used it over the years as well. But behind that, what we need to recognize is Jesus is the one who's created the diversity. He's the one that's made people the way that they are, the way that they look. We looked at this in the Sanctity of Life sermon recently. right? Psalm 139, you were knit together in your mother's womb. And he didn't just knit one color together, right? Like he's created all the different peoples of the world, every tribe and tongue and language and culture. And so there's this call here, will we be unified? Not uniformity, that's boring. God is so much more creative. The party at the end of the ages is so diverse, so many different cultures, so many things that you're gonna to get to experience and enjoy and be like, oh, I never even knew that that was the thing out there to enjoy in the world. All for the glory of God. And then he says this, he turns a corner, he says, okay, if this is what we're called to, he said, here's how this has to look. He says, do nothing. And that's a pretty all-encompassing phrase, right? And this is tough stuff that he begins to talk about. He says, the reality of the human condition is that we're prideful, and we tend to build our identity on certain things and we tend to separate ourselves from other people who might not look like us or think like us or vote like us or have the same values, all these sorts of things. There's all sorts of lines of demarcation that we begin to make. And at the root of it oftentimes is a pride. And so Paul just lays it I says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, here's what he's calling us to, count others more significant than yourselves. So when you and I look out, I mean, even this, this prayer, right, that we've been praying each week, the Lord's Prayer, there's this idea here of your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that our disposition should be for God and his will and his purposes, and part of his will and his purposes for us is that we would love God and that we would love other people And the reality of the situation often in my life is I want to make it about my will being done and about me making sure that I'm taken care of. And if I'm taken care of well enough and there's a little bit of leftover to give to somebody else, all well and good. But the scriptures orient us to an entirely new way of living that says, no, no, don't do anything out of selfish ambition, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Is this the disposition of our church? If the church could put this on display, so many, I believe, of the issues regarding race and ethnicity and the problems and troubles that we get into, I don't think they just immediately disappear. We'd still be living in a broken, fallen world. But I think there'd be some progress that would be made because we would suddenly be like, hey, before I make any snap judgments, let me consider you and your story. Let me uh, consider you more significant than than myself. Like, what if we really actually believe that? C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, talks about this idea of humility this way. He says, just to make sure we're clear what we mean by this. He says, do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person. And smarmy is this this idea, um, like excessive in your sort of insincerity, all right? Um, So he's like, that's not what we're talking about, who is always telling you that, of course, he is nobody. He's like, if you, if you run into somebody, oh, I'm nobody, I'm not anything, like, actually, you should be a little concerned, but like, stay away from those people. He says, probably all of you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap when you run into somebody who's truly humble, who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. That's the call here. We're so consumed with loving God and with loving other people that we don't walk around thinking what's in it for me. Imagine the impact that the church could have in the broader community. Verse 4, let each of you look then not only to his own interest but also to the interest of others. So here's what I want to talk about for a few minutes. If we look at this calling it says look not only to his own interest but also All right, and then Many commentators will even say that that word only is added there, that it's a bit more direct. Let each of you look not to his own interests, but look to the interests of others. How often am I consumed by self rather than other people? Like at the end of the day, the calling is to be a loving body, to love fellow image bearers. It's not just to make diversity all right, or racial reconciliation, the end, the end of the game is loving one another as Christ has called us to do. And if we are loving one another, I think we'll see some health and some progress as a church and out into the broader culture. So what I wanna do is let's talk about this idea of looking. Like, do you really see other people? Do you and I, do we see other people as fellow image bearers, the uniqueness of their story, or do we find ourselves threatened by things or unwilling to actually engage So last year after we went through this series, On Earth as it is in Heaven, one of the things that we were able to do as a church, many of you guys participated in this, uh, Wes and Denise Foster led an equipped class over at our offices called called The Branch. Um, I remember going to this, this was a month or so after this ended, and one of the things that they had us do, which was a really interesting exercise, we won't do it th- this morning, all right? But they did have us all stand up, all right? And um, they said, they, and they read a couple different statements. And if you identified with one, you went to this side of the room. And if you identified with the other, you went to this, this side of the room. And they started out a bit innocuous, like, do you like Coke or Pepsi, right? Um, do you think UCF really won a national championship or not? Or whatever it happens to be, right? Um, sorry cheap shot on my part they did not ask that they are UCF alum themselves but anyway so you know there's all these these things that they just kind of had had some fun with okay and then though a, a corner was turned and they began to ask a series of, of questions and one that they asked is they said okay move to this side if you think our church is diverse and then move to this side if you think our church is, isn't diverse and so you begin to see people kind of pondering that I'll tell you one of the really interesting things. Um, just as a pastor, one of the things that I get an opportunity to do is to engage with people as they're, maybe they're partnering with Crosspoint or they're getting more connected. And, and here's something I'm really encouraged by, but I also think there's a lot of room for us to grow in this, is that I have to tell you, probably over the last two years, I've heard a repeated thing from people. Um, so if you've said this, this, I'm not knocking this at all, all right? I'm glad this has been your experience, all right? But I also think there's room for us to grow here. People will often say, you know, one of the things that Drew said, like, this is, this is the most diverse church I've ever been part of, All right? There's a lot of diversity here. But I have to tell you, that has only ever been said by a white person, right? Um, Now, again, so we're doing this exercise and kind of even seeing how the room shakes out. By and large, hey, you might look around and be like, hey, I've been part of churches that were much more monocultural than than this. And so for you, kind of on this spectrum, you're like, well, yeah, maybe it does feel kind of diverse. But for other people, like, are you joking, like what? what are we, really, like, do you see all the white people that are here, right, Like, and so it was just this very kind of honest moment, so we're moving, now again, there wasn't a right or wrong answer, this is just some of our experience, but it was eye opening, Paul's telling us to look at other people, to, to see other people, to see the different stories and the different cultures and things that are represented, all right, and then this question was posed, I've been discriminated against because of my ethnicity and so move to one side of the room, or I have not been discriminated against because of my ethnicity, and to see some fellow brothers and sisters in our church move to that side was heartbreaking to say, oh my goodness, you have experienced discrimination. You've been one who's not part of the majority culture. And there's been real pain and there was opportunity to rest. So we didn't get to hear everybody's story, but to kind of break up into some small groups and to debrief for a moment, just to, to hear, wow, I... That's, that's horrific and that's terrible. There's probably even things that, that weren't spoken, maybe didn't feel comfortable being that vulnerable in that, that spot, but that's the reality of the situation, is that there are brothers and sisters within, just, we're just talking here within our body, but certainly out in the broader culture that this is the reality. We can't go and fix that and this is not like, okay, you know, I'm the white pastor, let's go solve that. That's not the calling here, but there is a call to see other people to look, how can we grow in our empathy, how can we be aware, like that had to be incredibly painful. Thank you for sharing some of your story with us, to value those things. There was another question that was asked, that said this, right, so I'm aware of and I embrace my cultural identity. Move to one side of the room, go to the other side if you're not very aware of or embrace your my cultural identity. And by and large, if I was gonna make some generalizations, those that were part of the non-majority, the non-white culture, had a clear answer. No, I'm aware of it, and I embrace my cultural identity. What's been fascinating for me, I'm not going to implicate everybody else, in it, but I know for me, one of the things that's been really helpful, and one of the points of that even equipped class at the Fosters led, was to help us see, like, everybody has a culture. Like, if you're a white person here this morning, like, you're part of a culture. Like, you, that's just part of your story. And it's not to feel bad about that. It's to actually learn, like, oh, I actually am a white man living in this time and this place. Like, okay. Like, actually to recognize that there's things about that that can actually be celebrated. You don't need to feel shame about that. But let's recognize that everybody does have a culture. So there's been several things that have been helpful for me just kind of reading through and studying on this. Um, Even talking with some friends. One of the things... You know, uh, reached out to some friends this week, and they were able to share as they have as a white family that has adopted a daughter that is uh, that is black, and be able to just say, "Hey, like, so what are the some of the things?" Um, Because of the fact that things get sort of normalized for the dominant culture, there are certain things that we just sort of take for granted. So things like whether it be books or movies or things like it tends to showcase who is the dominant majority culture. All right, and so little. Kids are growing up, all right, and they may not necessarily see their ethnicity and their culture reflected. So, one that the, the family mentioned said, yeah, even like getting a nativity scene. And so I was like, oh, that's interesting, let me go. And so, the very first thing I looked on Amazon last night, all right, um, and this, this came up, all right, here's the little thing. Now, what's fascinating, right, you have a black girl playing with a blonde baby Jesus with angels that are blonde, right? I mean, isn't it interesting? Like, so what's depicted there? If you could zoom in, that's what, that's what you would see. And it's like, I don't know that that's altogether accurate. I don't think Jesus had blonde hair. Can we at least agree with that, right? Um, and sort of just in this moment, well, why was that created that way? Well, because the dominant culture tends to be white. That's, that's the reality. And so there are certain privileges and things that, that come with that. And so part of us looking and seeing other people is a willingness to say, hey, if you're part of the majority culture, to realize that there are certain things that you don't have to adjust to, that the, the culture just sort of bends and adjusts towards you. From hair products that are offered to nativity scenes for your kids, to whatever it happens to be, all right, there are things that are out there. And I don't intend to put that out there like you just need to feel guilty and like the big call today is to repent for being white. That, that, that would be nonsensical. But have we considered other people? Do we actually see other people in unique stories? Andy Crouch wrote a book. Um, he tells the, the story. He's a, uh, a really helpful author, um, a book called Playing God. And he's talking about the beauty actually of that we've been given as image, we've actually been given power. And it's power to steward, all right? Now, you can abuse power, You can abuse privilege, but he said one of the first moments, and and Andy Crouch is a white man, um, he begins writing, he's retelling the story that some years ago he was flying from India, he's making his way to London, but he was flying from India, um, getting on a flight that was going to take him to Saudi Arabia, and as he showed up to the airport, and it was a very hot uh, afternoon, there was one person behind the ticket counter, he said there were about 75 Indian men that were in line in front of him, all carrying one small suitcase, and one of the things he said culturally you have to know is that there are lo- these men basically were commuting to work, that they would leave their, their town in India and then they would take this flight over to Saudi Arabia and then they would work there and they would come back at, at some point. And So he's like, well, I guess I'm going to be in line for a while. And he said he was there for no more than two or three minutes and the, the person behind the counter gets up, leaves that spot, comes and takes him says, come with me, sir. And he's like, well, you're in a foreign land. Like You just listen. You're just like, uh, uh-oh, like, what's happening? And so this person escorted him to the front of the line give me your passport, stamped his passport, gave him his boarding pass, and said, go. And he said, in that moment, it hit him. He's like, oh my goodness. Like, I got to skip the line just because of who I am, supposedly, in the world. It's just this white man. And he said, I wanted to sort of apologize to all the other men. And he said, as I look back at this line of men, he's like, no one even made any sort of mention. Nobody barked about it. Nobody was like, hey, how about this? Or Why are you doing that? Nobody, nobody did any of those sort of things. He said, what was most sad to him, and this realization, he's like, they all just expected it. That the moment he had gotten in line, they knew that this was going to happen. That there were certain privileges that he had. And so he says this in reflecting upon it. He says, but what really haunted me is this question. How many times have I been put at the front of the line without even knowing there was a line? So this is part of this awareness for us as a church, particularly if you're part of the majority culture. Are there things you're like, oh, I, I was completely unaware. How do we grow As a church, how many times have I walked through a door that opened invisibly and silently for me but slammed shut for others? How many lines have I cut in a life of privilege? Now, he is not saying at all. So if you're feeling a tension of like, but I worked hard at it, yes and amen to all of that. It's not knocking that at all. But it is stepping back and recognizing that if you happen to live in a place where you're part of the majority, there there are some benefits that come with that. And it's not for you to feel guilty about it, but it's rather to say, okay, what would be the Christian, the gospel response to it? Like, what do you and I, what are we called to do? And even if you're not not part of the majority culture, the reality is you have, there are certain gifts and privileges and power that's been given to you. Like, the question is, if you're a Christian, what do we do with what has been given to us? And so here's where we're gonna close is just look with me at verses 5 to 8, Philippians chapter 2, it says this, we've got to see what Jesus did. Philippians 2, 5 to 8, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That Jesus Rather than grasp for his privilege and his power and what even was rightfully his was willing to relinquish it and let go. So often I'm grasping for things, and the things that I'm grasping actually have ownership of me. And there's a calling here. There's this movement to become a cross-shaped community, sort of embracing what Jesus did for us, this downward trajectory where it's like, I am willing to give of some of the things that I have in order to move towards people, in order to enter in. Like you've been given certain power, privileges, rights, all of that, not so you would hoard that for yourself, but rather that you would empty yourself for the good of other people. And the motivation comes for that in those moments because it's hard and it's difficult. It's like, no, I want to keep what I think is mine or maybe I've earned this. The calling is this, that Jesus went to those that were undeserving. Sometimes we can even look at, well, I'm willing to go and give myself to somebody that I have deemed deserving. If Jesus had that mindset, we're all in a bad spot because I wasn't deserving, you weren't deserving. We were actually enemies of God himself committing treason against our king. And he's like, hey, guess what? I'm gonna empty myself and I'm gonna come into this world. I'm gonna live a sinless life that you've been called to live. I'm gonna empty myself, this downward descent to the cross that he took on Satan, death, hell, literally all of that. The wrath of God poured out on Jesus, which should have been poured out on you and on me. And if we can embrace that reality of this is what Jesus has done and allow that to fuel and to motivate, we could become a community that's actually shaped by the cross. And when a community begins to be shaped by the cross, you don't grasp for things thinking that's mine, I gotta hold on to that. You rather say in an open-handed way, I've been given this certain privileges I want to steward that, and I want to pour myself out for the good of other people. I want to see people. I want to count other people as more significant. I want to look and actually see people and get to know their story. I need to be willing to enter in and to say, I am sorry that that has happened to you. If you've sinned against somebody, to be quick to repent and apologize and move forward, knowing that you're probably going to mess things up along the way. And the beautiful thing is we run back to the cross, and it has all been paid for. We'll close with this, this is from Amy Julia Becker Becker again in her book, White Picket Fences. She says, I used to think that privilege provided a foundation for personal growth and for discovering a purpose bigger than me because it took care of my material needs. But time and again, she said, I found that provisions of affluence, sort of a, when you, nothing wrong with affluence, but when you just keep that to yourself, here's what she says she found. It will suck me into a web of self-centeredness where I focus on myself, my own resentments and disappointments, and I get stuck in an anxiety or an eating disorder or drinking too much, all over again she's like i get caught in this vicious loop and this has been part of her story she says privilege does provide uh more uh more than enough to take care of my material wants but we human beings need more than stuff we need relationships. We need relationships based upon mutual vulnerability and trust. We need spiritual lives that not only fill our souls but also give us a sense of purpose beyond ourselves that extend an invitation to participate in bringing light into the world. What is she tapping into? She's saying, like, I gotta live for something bigger than just me. I gotta live this life that is shaped by the cross, this sort of cruciform life where you pour yourself out for the good of other people when you are mindful of what Jesus has done for us. May that be who we are as a church. And it closes this way, verses nine to 11. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So this is what we're gonna confess as a church. In a moment, I'll give us some time to reflect and pray. I want you to know that this is where the story is heading, that one day every knee will bow. We have this opportunity to point more people to Jesus, to die to self, to see other people as more important than we are, to embrace the reality that, as Revelation 7 says, after this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is where the story's heading. And what we get to do here, what we're praying would we continue to increase, that there'd be more culture, more diversity of voices gathered around each and every week as we sing praises to our King, as we long for the day when Jesus comes back and He will gather in all the tribes and He's not going to wipe out all of our uniqueness and our diversity, but rather it's going to be this, this beautiful symphony of and all these voices coming together, alright? There's be harmony and unity and beauty, what we've been created for. And so I'm going to close this in prayer and give you a moment to respond. And so maybe there's something the Spirit has brought that what do you need to confess? Take some time then to celebrate the reality of Jesus' downward descent to the cross, that he poured himself out for you and me. And then let's ask the Lord, what, do you wanna, what is he calling you to commit to? To be an agent of reconciliation, to bring peace, to bring mishpots, to get to know somebody who has a story different from your own there be a number of things I think the Spirit will bring to us. Let me pray and give us a moment. Father, thank you for your love for us, your pursuit of us, your willingness to send your one and only Son on this rescue mission. Jesus, thank you that in the garden that night you were willing to say, not my will, but your will be done, Father. That you were willing to drink the cup of the Father's wrath that we should have drank. Instead, you took that upon yourself. You died the death that we deserved. And that three days later, you rose again so that this new humanity could be created, so that we could have this newness of life, that we might be able to be ministers and agents of reconciliation, to be ambassadors for you. And so, God, we ask now that you would hear our prayer, Spirit, lead us in a time of confession and repentance. Will you apply the truths of the gospel to our hearts so we might celebrate the reality that we've been made new in Christ. So God, I ask that you would get your glory and that we would get just a great joy in being the people you've called us to. We pray things in Jesus' name, amen.